You're tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Khan. I'm coming to you as we enter the second month of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The only positive aspect about this is that it gives me the opportunity to ask Ramzi Baroud to help me and our WPKN listeners around the world to make sense of what's going on. Among his many other past and present contributions, Ramsey is a US-Palestinian journalist, author of five books, and he's editor of the Palestine Chronicle. Ramsey's talking to us via Zoom from Seattle. So welcome, welcome Ramsey. It's always such a pleasure to welcome you as my guest. And always pleasure to be talking to you, Hazel. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Today, however, I'd like my questions to focus on the relationship between two invasions, Ukraine by Russia and Palestine by Israel. So in the very first days of the Russian invasion, it already became clear that part of the shock and the empathy expressed by people in the West, certainly in the US, was shaped by seeing a European people, white-skinned, blue-eyed, fair-haired people suddenly forced to leave their homes become refugees, lose everything as their homes and businesses collapsed into rubble. Now, this is a sight for any of us who follow Palestine or anything else in the Middle East. It's a familiar sight to us, where those things are more usual. We've come to expect them. So experts at that time told us why Putin was doing this and why Ukraine was fighting back. It was the idea of Ukraine that explained Ukrainian dedication and heroism and so on, they said. It was the idea that made, it was the idea of Ukraine that made Putin so crazy. The late Edward Said has written a great deal about the idea of Palestine, what it is and what it isn't. I just found something he he recorded in 1982. As long as one Palestinian lives, he said, the idea of Palestine will continue. Ramsey, do you see a connection between the, these ideas that these two countries, Ukraine and Palestine, have of themselves? Is there such a thing as the idea of Palestine and the idea of Ukraine? Um, thank you. That's an excellent question, and, and it requires a little bit of unraveling. I think we have to be careful not to make kind of convenient comparisons between various situations. Mm-hmm. that may or may not apply. And that is not to say that Palestine is unique in history or you know, Ukraine doesn't belong into that category, not at all. But let's remember, despite the fact that there has been an active civil war in Eastern Ukraine for uh, eight years now, for the vast majority of people around the world and Sadly to say, also intellectuals and and people who are now very much involved in the conversation, taking sides and and offering context, uh, historical context, the whole thing was really quite um, unclear, ambiguous, and far, far away. So I think it's going to take us some time to actually try to understand what is actually happening there. Why is it happening? How is it linked to the collapse of the Soviet Union? How is it linked to the politicking of the Communist Party in Moscow back in the 50s and 60s and 70s when there was so much politics about the 
national identities, unique national identities within, you know, Soviet states. And it also has to be placed within the um, obvious uh, uh, geopolitical currents that are about to reshape a new world now and in coming months and years. <clears throat> For us to kind of just lump all of this into one single category and make immediate connections with Palestine or Yemen or Libya or Syria, mm. it is a bit risky. Risky mm. from an analytical point of view, from a historical point of view, and from other points of view as well. So what I would rather have us do, and I don't mean you and I in this conversation, but in general, mm. is to kind of develop two different understandings. That uniqueness of the of the situation between Ukraine and Russia on the one hand, and other obvious elements, the double standards of the so-called international law, the double standards of the so-called international community, the very definition of aggressions, invasions, occupations, violation of human rights as perceived by Washington, by London, by Brussels. This is obvious. And this is something that we can actually talk about and with confidence that we are really not opening a Pandora's box of what could potentially be the wrong analysis. Mm. I understand. I appreciate that. But I hope you'll also be talking about the media scene, what people are therefore being influenced to think. Of course you will. Uh, of course. And that's where the element of racism that you highlighted astutely so earlier in the discussion mm. in reference to the skin color and, you know, and, and so forth. Again, here we have to be also make clear distinction between the everyday racism of ordinary people. Yes, indeed, Europe was particularly shocked to see people who looked like them and who had more or less similar cultural habits like them and very close to them in comparison to, say, Yemen or Palestine and so forth. Yes, they were shocked by it. And that's where racism comes in, how they welcomed refugees from the Ukraine, despite the fact that the number has reached somewhere near the 4 million, mm. uh, and uh, where you have about 6-7 million who are internally displaced within Ukraine itself. Compare this, for example, to the refugees who were leaving Syria. Nobody was welcoming. They had to go on, on dinghies and, and, and rickety boats, trying to make it to Greece and Italy. In many occasions, they were drowned. They were literally drowned in the sea because nobody would receive them. You have an entire far-right nationalistic movement in Europe that was created and perfected in the last decade or so based on their hatred of immigrants and refugees coming from Afghanistan and Pakistan, Africa, and the Middle East. You don't have a far-right movement right now that's trying to channel the energy and the hate and the racism against Ukrainian refugees. But that said, we also have to be able to distinguish between the political expediency of the conflict as how it serves ruling classes in Europe versus your everyday racist perception held by ordinary people as conveyed by equally racist media. And that's why it's important that we don't simply just make comparisons between uh, Ukraine and Palestine, Ukraine, Iraq, Yemen, Libya, Syria, Somalia, Congo, Mali, and so forth. But we also have to understand that there were many conflicts in the past in which 
race wasn't really a factor and that NATO was involved with the same degree of intensity. And they were building a political discourse very similar to the one that they are building against Russia. For example, what happened in Serbia. I mean, technically, they were supposedly saving Muslims. I mean, imagine this. Muslims who are now the most hated of all racial or religious or spiritual or, or communal groups in Europe because of the refugee crisis coming from Syria particularly. But NATO wanted to convince us that they were actually saving Bosnians, saving Kosovan Muslims and so forth. And they were fighting and bombing Belgrads and the, the Christian Serbs. So this is just one of many conflicts. How about where they went to Kuwait in 1990-91 to save or to restore the supposed democracy in Kuwait that never really existed, they created a similar political media paradigm. Even in 2003, when they went to Iraq again, and they were targeting Muslim Sunnis in order for them to supposedly save the Muslim Shias. But eventually they turned against the Shias because the Shias more or less in support of Iran. So this manipulation of race, and, and that's really the point I'm trying to make, this mm. manipulation of race and color and religion and sects and ethnicity, it is something that is not entirely motivated by racial elements within the ruling class. The ruling class is brutal in their thinking. They don't care about anyone, any religion, any color, any race. What they really care about is how it's going to benefit them financially and politically in the short and medium terms, and how it's going to benefit them geopolitically in the long term. And just one final thing I'd like to say uh, about this, Hazel, is if indeed Ukrainians mattered as a race to Europe, why the dumping of weapons at this incredible rate in the Ukraine? You know that these weapons are going to eventually fall in the wrong hands. And you know that Ukraine is a country that has been struggling in terms of communal conflicts, not only between the East and West, but also among the Western political powers as well. We know what happened in Al-Maidan in 2014. We know the violence that followed. We know the military coups that followed. We know all of these things. So you are dumping so much weapons and you are flaming a conflict that you know will result in immense suffering of ordinary, innocent Ukrainian people. If indeed they cared about Ukrainians because of their color and race and nothing else, they would have actually done much more, much earlier on in order for them to actually find political compromises without having to deal with the atrocities that are happening at the moment. How much earlier on would they have done that? You mean in 2000? Uh, even earlier than 2014. We know that the, that the Americans uh, were particularly interested in Ukraine for many years, but particularly during and after what was described as the Ukrainian Arab Spring, the events in Maidan, and, and how they became very involved financially, how they became very involved politically. You had some of the most uh, sordid elements of the neoconservatives, shop in Ukraine, politically shop in Ukraine, as in using, manipulating, uh, creating different political platforms in order for them to carry out their dirty business there. If that did not happen, and if Europe, NATO, but no, European Union rather, in particular, had the wisdom to think forward just a little bit 
and were just slightly more daring to operate outside this control that Washington has over them, I think they would have averted the crisis. And I think the Minsk agreement would have been respected and would have been implemented. And 15,000 people would have not died in the eastern Ukraine, 70% of them loyal to Russia, 30% Ukraine, but essentially they were all Ukraine and they have been suffering for such a long, long time. Why not enough has been done to help them then instead of sending them as much weapons as the US has been sending to Israel? What do you expect when you dump billions of dollars worth of weapon in a conflict zone? What will happen to these weapons? Will be they converted to buy flowers and sugar and to rebuild the destroyed houses? Or will they be used in a war that seemed to be relentless, communal civil war that, that now culminated to something much bigger and much worse? That doesn't excuse Russia in any, in any way. Military occupation or invasion has to be condemned because we can't set this kind of precedents because if we say it's okay what Russia is doing, then in some, you know, in retrospect, maybe then Israel has a point. No, we can't go there. But that doesn't mean that we should just blindly follow the narrative that has been constructed so very carefully, the one-sided narrative constructed by US and mainstream corporate media that basically tells us that everything was good and dandy. We've tried everything in our power to help them achieve peace. And, but, you know, Putin is a psychopath and he decided to do what he did. No, there is much more to the story than that. Well, what else can you tell us, actually? How does it follow from Maidan? If you allow me, Hazel, I would dare even take us a little bit earlier than Maidan, particularly to the humiliating collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. Author and journalist Ramzi Baroud is talking about Ukraine and the New World Order. This is Tidings on WPKN Radio. History is not news sound bites. Uh, history is not uh, a political statement issued by the White House or, or whatever. History is a protracted process. Something that happens today could only mature maybe in 20, 30, 40, or even 100 years. It is very complicated, and we have to understand that. The collapse of the Soviet Union, it was quite humiliating. It completely shattered the very identity of the, of the Russians, but of all the republics that were part of this union, an identity that has affected the individual and the collective mindsets of Russians and all of these related communities. When it collapsed, it was quite humiliating. They were not spared any sense of dignity whatsoever. Now, the understanding that the Russians and, and now the Guardian newspapers and others are confirming is that NATO had made a promise that they are not going to be expanding in Eastern Europe and they will not be threatening Russian national security. None of this happened. NATO expanded uh, at a lightning speed and, and then Russia found itself kind of ringed by this massive military apparatus. Now, you would say, well, why did Russia decide to draw the line here in Ukraine now? Why? Why didn't they draw it in Georgia? Why didn't they draw it in Lithuania, in Latvia, in Poland? Why now? Why? My guess is that they have done so because of one single word, Afghanistan. 
the U.S. retreat from Afghanistan was ushered in the beginning of the end of American control over Central Asia and further accentuated the shrinking of this embattled American empire. So from a Russian point of view, this is the perfect opportunity to draw that line. Now, we know that the Russians have been amassing at the borders under the pretense that they were doing so some kind of military drills and exercises for weeks, if not months prior to the invasion of the Ukraine. And the Americans themselves have accepted that and they have been saying that as well. There was so much room for negotiations. I really don't think personally that the Russians wanted to take over the Donbass. They wanted the Donbass to become some sort of a buffer zone between Russia and the Ukraine, they were much more keen on Crimea because of the access to the, the, the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. Remove Crimea from that puzzle, you're going to have a big problem because as we know, 70% of the world's resources are either existing in or, or channeled through water. We know that. And if you control water, you control everything. Now, We know that Russia has been already fighting with Japan or about to reach some sort of an agreement over a a series of islands between Japan and Russia because they needed to have access to the Pacific. And also they are very keen on having access to the Black Sea, the same way that Russia is fighting for the South, the East China Sea, in order for them to have access to the Pacific and to the Indian Oceans. A lot of this has been happening around water. Now, Nobody has done anything to ensure the respect to the Minsk agreement. And therefore, Russia was caught in a terrible situation. If they don't escalate, it means America scored yet another geopolitical victory. And Washington is back. Washington is back. Afghanistan was just a simple setback. But we are back and we are dominating. And we are calling the shots in Eastern Europe, in Central Asia, and in the Pacific and so forth. China would have not been happy with that, by the way. But if the Russians did not retreat, then they have to think in terms of military action. And maybe the Russian thinking is that, well, once we kind of really show that we are serious, Kiev is going to cave in and say, okay, listen, we are willing to talk. We will go back to the Minsk agreement, no problem. But that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because of the the 55,000 types of sanctions imposed within the matter of hours and days and because of the dumping of billions of dollars worth of weapons in the Ukraine, which has empowered a particular faction within the Ukrainian government and within the Ukrainian political establishment, particularly the far right and the nationalists, the one that Putin refers to as neo-Nazis. And this empowered the more moderate elements, including the socialists who are willing to find some sort of a compromise. So the Americans are hoping now for a stalemate, the Russians don't, they don't want that because they know if they stall and they stall too long, their ability to negotiate a more advantageous geopolitical resolution or agreement is going to be jeopardized in the long run. And this is why we are in this seemingly impossible situation. So America has been pumping arms into Ukraine. That also, I guess, explains how well-trained the Ukrainians appear to be, along with the weapons that America's been sending in for a long, long time now. They've always been training them on those weeks. Of course, the West is not shying away. They're saying we're not sending soldiers, but we will send uh, 
uh, military technicians and engineers and trainers. You can call them whatever you want, but they are soldiers. And, and also they are allowing for a large number of mercenaries. And, you know, we, we've seen what mercenaries have done in Iraq. So this is particularly terrifying prospect. I know this is a very, very difficult subject to navigate, and you don't want to appear to be siding with this or that. And again, as Palestinians, we are in a particularly tough uh, situation here because we are an occupied nation. But what Russia calls neo-Nazis, I mean, it's not like they are shying away from it. I mean, they do carry, you know, Nazi flags and distribute Nazi literature, and they are basing their you know, much of their thinking on this racial supremacy principle now, call it neo-Nazi, call it racist, call it far-right nationalist, call it whatever it is, but it is, you know, something that should not be celebrated and it should not be supported. And that's really what is quite worrisome uh, in the future. I think there are two types of parallel scenarios that are developing here. One is happening at, at, at a foreign policy level. Lavrov was in China recently to meet with the foreign minister of that country to kind of articulate the next stage of global affairs. I wrote an article about two months before all of this, and I argued, what if China and Russia enter into an outright alliance? And I made an argument that they are already actually forming all kinds of alliances, and the language Uh, the the political discourse is becoming more coordinated. It's clear that there is something happening, not just at the United Nations General Assembly, not just between Russia and China in terms of borders and all of that, but also in terms of coordinations in South America, in terms of coordinations in in the Middle East, in terms of coordination in Africa, especially in East Africa, so, uh, sorry, in West Africa. So something is happening here that, that has also made the argument that if Russia is going to invade Ukraine, it will happen after the Olympics. So that Beijing is not caught in, in an embarrassing situation where you have thousands of people stranded. And indeed, that's what the CIA has later revealed. Putin has informed Xi in the first day of the Olympics that this invasion will happen, but we will wait until after the mm-hmm. Olympics. And now we are seeing this coordination accelerating and the type of language that is being developed between them. They are not saying bipolar world, by the way. They are talking about a multipolar world. They have already agreed on how they fit in this jigsaw puzzle of geopolitics. It's like that already has been discussed. So the language is kind of falling into that direction. And it seems to me that this is irreversible. No matter what happens in the Ukraine, the world has in fact changed, as we haven't seen since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But the other element is what is happening and what is decided by the fighting forces on the ground. And this is why the Americans are trying to prolong the fight, because they are hoping for different outcomes. The Europeans are extremely nervous, because prolonging the fight means that they will suffer economically. The Russians want to reach a point any point in which we would say, we have achieved our main objectives and it's done. This is our new line in the sand. Donbass is going to go through some sort of a referendum to decide whether they want to be independent or to be, want to be part of Russia. And either way, we will accept it. The, you know, the Black Sea is more or less ours. We've finished, we are victorious, we're done. And that's the kind of scenario that the Americans hate. And the Europeans are not really sure 
they don't really know what to do at this point. They are stuck between the outcome of the war that is being determined largely by Russia, but also the geostrategic militaristic thinking of London and Washington, who have different calculations than the rest of mainland Europe. What else should we expect to see between China and Russia now? Is there a point, and that's a question that I, I, you know, I contended with, but I know numerous people or experts around the world also try to understand. Will that be a point in which China is going to say to Russia, listen, enough is enough. We supported you in the beginning, but it doesn't seem like you have a very clear strategy. That strategy is not consistent with our economic interest. We don't want to be caught in the middle. Please wrap it up and move on. That didn't happen. What actually happened is that the language of the of Chinese official it kind of escalated more and more to the point that we saw the foreign ministers of both countries meeting and almost kind of like finishing each other's lines. And that was a month or more after the Russian invasion. So it tells me if the Chinese haven't taken any steps to show or to tell Russia that we're not interested in this war anymore, that would have happened a long time ago. Or, or weeks ago. It didn't happen. It means it, it's most likely it will not happen. Not just that. The Chinese are now escalating their language regarding Taiwan. Chinese uh, Navy ships have been going back and forth in the Strait of Taiwan. Not just that. They are now signing an agreement with the leaders of the Solomon Islands near Australia mm-hmm. in order for them to have geostrategic access as far as possible in the Pacific. And this Australian government is panicking. What are the Chinese doing exactly? And they are trying to threaten the the government in the Solomon Islands to seize and desist and to push the Chinese back. But the latest I heard that this is gonna continue and China is most likely going to have a military base miles from the Australian coastline. So that comes to show you that not only that they are coordinating Russia and China well, but China is using this to advance its geostrategic plan way beyond Taiwan into something else entirely. So what we are talking about is a long-term alliance, might not be official alliance, might not be a military alliance, but certainly a political alliance between Russia and China in coming years. And does Japan figure into this as well? Japan does figure into, into this. And we know that there is a lot of resistance to American military presence mm-hmm. in Japan. You know, there was this kind of idea that maybe, maybe this is the opportunity for certain political camps in Japan to say, well, if everybody is liberating themselves from American dominance, why can't we? We don't want to be pro-Russia, but we would like to be more neutral similar to the position that's taken by Erdogan in Turkey, for example. But that didn't happen, which indicates that the American control over Japanese decision-making is still absolutely powerful, and the Japanese government has taken all the, the, the steps that the Washington has asked of them, which, of course, led the Russians to end the ongoing negotiations over the status of the islands, the strategic islands separating Japan from Russia, which is a huge loss for Japan, because Japan was hoping to redeem some of these islands that are actually Japanese. And the Soviets have acquired these islands after World War II. The the Russians are saying they are Japanese, but we want to be able to access them to the more strategic water in the Pacific Ocean. 
And, and they were really about to strike that deal. But because of the Russian pro-American position taken by Japan, rather, the Russians found themselves in a situation where they had to cancel the negotiations. And in the future, of course, Japan is going to suffer as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much, Ramzi. I know you're a very busy man, and I do appreciate your taking time to talk to us. How should our listeners find out more about what you're doing? You can visit uh, my personal website. That's ramzibarud.net, R-A-M-Z-Y-B-A-R-O-U-D.net. Or they can, of course, go to the Palestine Chronicle, uh, which is uh, it's available both in French and English. And It's a wonderful place to, to go to. It's always updated. It's so, so up-to-date all the time. And, of course, then there's your Twitter and your... That's right. Your, I'm present in all social media platforms. Yeah. So thank you very much indeed, Ramzi. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hazel. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to author and journalist Ramzi Baroud talking about the new world order reflected in Russia's war on Ukraine. You can hear tidings right here on the second Wednesday of the month and anytime at all as podcasts on hazelkhan.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Hazel Khan. Thank you.